If you have elementary age kids, we'd love for them to be a part of our Vine Kids time. They can go out these doors, and uh, we've got great stuff going on. As you can tell, those of you that are here for the first time or the first few times, we have a lot of little children, and we've got a lot of babies. We had another baby on Thursday, and so it's really an exciting and fun time to sort of watch what the Lord is doing. And that's kind of why when I talk about a Christmas pageant and things, we're excited about celebrating the uh, children that God has put in our community, and we want to elevate them and support them, and they're going to sing and recite lines and dress up, and we want to be such a part of that. So we're really, really excited about that. So it's been an eventful few weeks, I'm not going to lie to you. Actually, it feels like a few weeks has been like nine days. Um, it has been wild, right? And so I'm going to give you the quick little story just so everybody knows kind of what's going on and what happened because it's really important so that we can kind of share all this information together. But uh, last Friday night, right, last Friday night, I was sitting uh, at home. Uh, we, I don't remember what we were doing. We were, it was kind of late. It was like getting eight. You know, I'm old, getting late, uh, thinking about bed on Friday at eight. And my, the phone goes off, my phone, and it's the alarm company saying, hey, your uh, burglar alarm is going off, which not all that surprising. A lot of times the brain leaves the doors open and things disappear. So I'm not shocked, right? And so I'm like, I'm usually just like, no big deal, but we have security cameras and I'm able to kind of pull those up real quick. And as I pull it up, I can see the fire department breaking through our front doors, crowbar, popping them open. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm guessing I probably need to go on down there. I wonder if I sit here long enough and it'll just not be happening, right? But there's no way to communicate with them. I can just see them, right? So I can't be like, 10-4, fire, fire, fire people, um, what are you doing? So I can see all the lights going on, and I'm thinking, that's not good. But the fire alarm's not going off, just the burglar alarm. So I was like, all right, I, I got to go down there. And so I head down here, and it takes me a little while, but I can see the, the security cameras on my phone, and so I'm kind of watching. They're flooding people in out of here, and they're running down the hallways, and I'm thinking, man, this is really can't be going well. So we get down here, and they have got every fire truck in the city out here. I lie to you not, there were eight of them, three ladder trucks, right, all pointing up our building, like three of them. They had one in the front, sides, the back, and they had firemen crawling all over this place like flies on a rib roast, right? And so they were everywhere. And so I come in, I park, and I get out, and of course, they just let me right up. Like, I thought there was some kind of like a sign, some way, I just shoot up to the building like I'm one of the guys, you know? So I'm thinking, hey, give me a hose or whatever, and I'll help out, or, you know, I'm here, uh, problem solved. And so, uh, so I'm talking to the guys, and they're all standing around. By the time we get kind of through here, we, I realize that the whole building's not on fire, right? But you could see that they were all up here. And directly behind us, we have these two giant HVAC units that sit on the roof. And uh, still not quite sure what was going on, but come to find out that one of those units in its compressor had a short. And that short melted the conduit that goes around the electrical line, and that line touches the roof. And as it got hot, it heated up, and our roof is a sort of a vinyl material, and that slowly caught. And over the course of time, it kind of built into a fire, and it burned the roofing material, and the tar underneath it caught, and so it burned the roof. So the flames didn't actually come in the building, they cut in the roof. But the fire department, because they're thorough, they had to make sure it was all out, I guess. And so they pulled all that roofing material back and then dumped all the water from Lake Hefner onto our top of our roof and it just came flooding through the back some areas you can see here came through here and uh, the girls bathroom smells like a construction site so don't linger in there but those walls and then everything back here that we had already gutted uh, we'd already kind of gotten rid of we had had this big work day was just full of water and there's actually a second floor here those who've been up to the holy of holies up there um, 
a little concrete deck. It's a really cool area. One day we want to turn it into a youth room. That's another project for another day. But it's, it was full of water, too, and it's just kind of pouring down through here. And so we're in. They let me come in. Like, I don't, know, I don't know what the rules are, but they just let me come in, right? Still kind of on fire. Water's still coming everywhere. And the fire guys are like, I don't know, man. You may want to move your stuff, right? This is what we're having, this conversation. Water's pouring through there, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm probably going to want to move that stuff. I mean, because if we can save any of it, we will. So I had been trying to call some folks on my way down, people that lived close, but they were all sending me to voicemail because nobody wants to hear from me on a Friday night. So I called Don, and his phone's broken, right? And I called Carson. He's in Belize. I mean, all these stories, right? (laughs) I can't get anybody. Jeff's at Chick-fil-A up there in Edmond for some reason because the one down here is not good enough, I guess. And so no one's coming, right? And so it's just me. So I'm thinking, that's fine. I don't need anybody. I got this, right? So I'm a, and so anyway, I get in here, and finally the word kind of gets out. The people living in the area are going to come kind of help out. So I'm walking through the building right here with the fire chief and about four fire guys while they're still coming in. Now, if you know, here's what happens. Coming through the front door comes Ashley Cannon. Now, Ashley Cannon gave birth on Thursday to her baby. This was six days, five days prior. She comes through pregnant with a baby on her belly like she's coming to help, right? She comes down the hallway, and, and the fire department chief goes, who's this? And I was like, it's our pregnant lifesaver. Like, literally, I was like, what are you doing here? You do not need to be in this building, baby sitting on her belly, right? Looking around, she's like, well, I thought you might need the help. I was like, yeah, from not from you, like, my gosh. She's like, well, there's three of us. I'm like, that's not what I meant. Three of you Man, so she's in here, and I'm going, that can't be good. And then Matt Cannon, her husband, comes in. He's like, I told her not to go in. And she was first responder, saving lives. Don and, and uh, Wendy, of course, were here. They came up and helped. And, and Jeff and Jody and Anderson. And uh, we were able to move all the stuff off stage. Okay, so all that happens. We get everything off. We don't actually have any real, like, physical damage, except for the fire department had to break the doors and for the, all the water in the back. We've got HVAC that's going to get fixed eventually and roof that's going to get fixed eventually. So we're working through all that. So I'm getting ready to leave. It's like 11 o'clock. I've been up here. You know, I'm just kind of tired. I'm thinking, well, I don't know what we're going to do. And, and the security guard from Crown Heights pulls up. I won't use his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But it's a great story, so I'm going to tell it anyway. Oh, well. He pulls up in his Jeep Liberty, right? Um, and he pulls up and he goes, hey, man, you got a minute? I was like, sure. Fire department's all gone. Just me and this gentleman in the parking lot. He goes, I just want you to know I called this in. I said, awesome. Thank you. I mean, you know, he goes, I will tell you, it's out of my jurisdiction. I was like, <laughs> so where is your jurisdiction? He goes, it ends on 37th. So like, he goes, but I told myself, I drove by, I saw flames, and I said, something ain't right. <laughs> and I said, yeah, really? And then he goes, and this is a true story. He goes, look, I'm not looking for uh, recognition, not trying to be a hero. I was like, good, because you're not. You called the fire department when you saw flames. Every human I know would have done that. But he was like, I don't want to be a hero, man. Just doing my job. I was like, man, apparently so. It's great. So he saved our lives. We're grateful for that guy. Uh, circles around here every now and again. And so, uh, so we decided to... Uh, just kind of missed Sunday. We could, there was no way we could have put together. The, the building smelled like smoke. It was kind of a mess. So we started real quickly on Saturday getting everything kind of restored. We spent all week with, you know, restoration teams, getting the water out and all that. But we went ahead and started because this is just sort of the way we did it. We had all these construction things lined up because we're building out the back now, right? Apparently, if you all turn in your pledge cards, we're building out the back. If you don't, we made a big mistake. So 
So we, um, we started, we just decided to go for it because we're going to be set back two weeks. If it's a long story, if we reschedule floor guys and all stuff. So we just went ahead and went for it. So we've been pulling things out and made things really chaotic. Well, on Wednesday, when they, there's this big concrete floor, they bring in these big industrial, industrial grinders, concrete grinders. And on Wednesday, after we'd already told everybody that we were having church here on Sunday, they bring those in. And it puts concrete dust. And I'm not going to lie to you. On every piece of toilet paper, coffee cup, kid's toy in the entire building. And Brandon and I walked in on Thursday and we thought, oh, dear Lord. Like, it was like white. And we thought, well, I guess we should double up the cleaning team, right? Because, but then we thought, there's just no way. So we had to call in a team on Friday to come in and they cleaned every chair and all these little things. And then our teams came in on Saturday and they cleaned unbelievably well. So the fact that you can't tell that anything has happened here is a tribute to how amazing the folks are in this church. They have gone through every piece and every toy and every piece of toilet paper and literally cleaned everything that we've got. It was insane. So we are living in this sort of chaotic moment, right? Um, we don't know when the HVAC will be back. We're working with our building owner to get their insurance claims all done and our own all done. And so it could be several weeks, and so it might be cold, but this is just sort of what we're doing, right? We are building these great memories. And in the meantime, we are getting ready to build the back. We've done all that demo, all that construction. It's all back there. And then when the new roof gets put on, we'll start with walls and drywall. And our goal still is to have this thing functional by Christmas. So on the 23rd, we're really hoping to be able to use all of our new space. Uh, kids will be in here with their pageant and their little shepherd costumes. It'll be really, really amazing. So all I have to say, man, it's been a really fun week. Really fun week. Um, it's just the adventure of following Jesus, right? He never makes it dull. And, and, you know, everyone's like, were you so stressed out? I'm like, look, this is easy stuff, right? I mean, the things that should stress us out are the fact that life is really hard. This is just a building. Like, even if it burns to the ground, it doesn't mean who we are as a church. Like, we could meet literally anywhere. The fact that God still allows us to show up in here is just great. So we are all good. All of you that have texted and called and said, hey, can we help? The real, the real answer to that is not quite yet. We don't really know what happens next. We've got to wait on a bunch of people to finish out their things. But as of right now, we are just kind of going for it. So your patience is greatly, greatly appreciated. So we decided we we're going to go for it this Sunday. We're going to jump back into the Gospel of John. Now, we've got a lot of things going on, so I'm going to be kind of quick this morning. And I wanted to tell that story uh, because it's just part of the fun of following Jesus together. But we stepped into the Gospel of John 77 weeks ago, right? And we've taken some breaks in between there. We've been put, well, you actually will be about two years in January. So it's been quite the journey for us. We have made it to the last moments in the life of Jesus. It's Friday. Jesus is on the brink of literally being crucified. He has been betrayed. Everybody that he loves has run out on him. All his friends have abandoned him. He's been taken both before the Jewish leaders and now the Roman leaders. He's been led before Pilate, where Pilate said to the Jewish people, I find no fault in this guy. And they're like, no, kill him, crucify him. And so Pilate takes Jesus back, and he's like, listen, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, look, my, my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate can't find anything wrong with Jesus. He takes him back, and he says, look, I will give you Barabbas. I will give you the insurrectionist and the murderer. I will release him to you, right? And there, or I will release Jesus to you, and I will put to death Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer. And the Jewish people were like, no, no, we want Barabbas. Give us back that awful guy and kill Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead. And so last week, Brandon looked at uh, sort of the length of what Pilate was willing to do 
to not have to crucify Christ and talked about the purity of the lamb and what it means that Jesus was flawless and that Pilate could find nothing in him. And so Pilate tries to appease the Jews by not killing him but beating him. He has him flogged, a crown of thorns placed on his head, a robe put on his back, humiliated him, and then takes him back out and says, look, here's your king, right? Here's your king. And they're like, no way, we want him dead. That's not good enough. Beating and mockery and shame, those things aren't good enough. We want Jesus dead. And what we're going to see this morning is that the Jewish people are going to tip their true hand. They're going to show their true spiritual condition in their heart. And we're going to ask ourselves a couple of questions in the midst of sort of their exposure. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 19. Like I said, we are moments away from Jesus' death, which is horrifying and awful as it is, is actually a wonderful thing because it leads us to the resurrection, right? So we, uh, we are going to be stepping into these incredible, incredible times. And so that's where we are. Pilate is trying like crazy to free Jesus, and the Jewish leaders and angry mob want no part of it. And Pilate, as we're going to see this morning, is going to give in to their pressure and their demands. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then let's look at um, John chapter 19, verses, oh, I don't know, maybe seven or so, eight, eight through uh, sort of into that section. But let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. I thank you, God, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword. I thank you that this word is true. I thank you, God, that it is, it is your beautiful love story poured out for us. Lord, if these things don't happen, if Jesus isn't crucified and raised from the dead, then as Paul says, everything we believe is in vain. And so, Lord, these are the truest words ever written. And so this morning, I pray, God, that what we would see is we would see you moving through these pages to rescue us. That this is the redemptive story of humanity. That you were rescuing us right here in this place through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are seeing those wheels in motion. Take just a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. Just to teach and instruct your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. Even if you don't know their name, we, get, we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them this morning. Lord, we ask that you would just draw us into your presence. And make your word come alive and teach our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So the first part of 19, Pilate has Jesus flogged and embarrassed and shamed. Puts a crown of thorns on his head. Those Roman soldiers spit in his face. They strike him. They put a purple robe, a robe of royalty, which is really just mockery on his back. Pilate takes Jesus back out to the Jewish people and says, look, here, I find no reason to crucify him. Basically saying, look, I've done enough. Just take this guy back, right? But they don't do it. They actually shout in verse 6, crucify, crucify. Pilate answers in this moment of desperation. He says, look, you crucify him. But Pilate knew that was like a just a kind of a shot in the dark because they didn't have the power to do it. And Pilate knew they didn't either. But he's a man at the end of his rope. Because he does not want to put to death this innocent man. And we're going to find out why here in just a moment. 
The Jews in verse 7 say this. They say, Brandon ended on this last week or, or two weeks ago. We have a law, right? And that law cites that if we find, or that law says that he must die because he claims to be the son of God. And we'll get back to this, but then we see the Jews truly tip their hand. And this is what happens in verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside in the palace and he looked at Jesus and said, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Do you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, no, the one who has handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judge's seat, a place known as Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And it was on the day of preparation of Passover week. It was about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest shouted. And finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So these are the wheels that have been set in motion of redemptive history. These are the stories that lead us to Good Friday and to Easter, right? This is incredibly important stuff. And there's a few things in this passage that we actually have to ask ourselves in order to really see what God is doing. Pilate, as Brandon mentioned over and over again last time we taught, was incensed that Jesus was innocent. That he had done nothing wrong, especially nothing deserving death. That he was absolutely pure. And Pilate wanted no part of putting him to death. Now this is crazy because Pilate hated the Jews. He honestly would have no real problem putting a Jewish person to death. In fact, at his hand, hundreds had already been killed in demonstrations. You may remember about eight weeks ago, we talked about the complex and hateful relationship between the Jews and Pilate. And how they had had all these revolts. And finally, Pilate went through the streets and just murdered people. But he doesn't want to put Jesus to death. Something else is there. And so he looks at this crowd and he basically says, look, I find no reason to put him to death. And the Jews say, look, he has to because he, he uh, claims to be the son of God. Verse 8 says that Pilate was even more afraid. Goes back inside and he looks at Jesus and he says, this is the same question he asked before, tell me where you come from. Right? Jesus says nothing. Pilate looks at him in almost sort of in this angry statement, not really a question, says, do you not know that I have the power to kill you or to free you? And Jesus goes, you don't have any power. The only power you have is because it was given to you by the Father, right? Well, Pilate at that point in time does everything he can to set Jesus free. Verse 12 tells us from that point on, he kept trying to set him free, but the Jewish people kept shouting louder. If you let him go, you aren't a friend of Caesar, right? Anything they can think of. So Pilate goes out to the judge's seat where he made authoritative decisions in front of the crowd. He sat on this big stone seat, right? And he says, look, here's your king, right? And they shout, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate says, are you sure you want me to crucify your king? And the chief priests, right? And there's, there's a bunch of them. The chief priests shout, we have no king but Caesar. Now think about all the things that we've talked about when it comes to the Romans and the Jewish people. And to hear the Jews, right, claim, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. 
And so finally, Pilate gives in, and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. There's a ton going on there. It's actually really, really powerful stuff. And there's several questions that I think we have to ask ourselves. And the first question that really kind of gripped me was, why is Pilate afraid? So in all honesty, Pilate is probably the most powerful person in the entire area. Outside of Caesar, he probably has no real authority. Now, there are some arguments over, there are some governors in the area, but they all kind of squabbled for power. But the truth is, Pilate had the entire Roman army in the area under his control. He had already put to death hundreds of these Jews. And yet, verse 8 says that when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Meaning, at some point in time, Pilate was afraid. Well, what is Pilate afraid of? Do you remember back when the Jewish people first brought Jesus to Pilate? They come up to his courtyard. They don't want to go inside, right? Because they don't want to make themselves unclean by going in a Gentile's house before the Passover, even while they're bringing the Son of God to be crucified, right? Of course, the incredible uh, paradox that that is. And they bring Jesus to Pilate early in the morning, and Pilate walks out and he says, what's the charge against this man? Do you remember what the Jews said? They said, do you think that if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't bring him here? In other words, don't ask us what charge there is. Just do what we say. Kill him. So Pilate takes Jesus inside and he says, is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, who told you that? Did they or did you hear it from somewhere else? And Pilate says, no, who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom isn't from here. My kingdom is from another world. Pilate goes back out and from that point on, Pilate's like, look, I don't know what you found against this guy. But that moment, Pilate catches something, right? So here they are again. The Jews come now with the tip of their full hand because they had originally come to Pilate to say, we want him killed because he claims to be king of the Jews because the Jewish people knew that the death sentence would be if somebody were to rise up against Caesar and the only priest that's going to rise up against Caesar, some kind of political revolt or another king. The, what the Romans were afraid of was that there would be another kingdom that would try and rival Caesar and so they would put that kingdom down. So if you claim to be king of the Jews, it was your execution sentence. The Jews knew that. Well, when Pilate starts to actually push back and say, look, I don't think I'm going to kill Jesus, they panic. And they say, you have to. Our law says that you have to kill him. And Pilate's like, why? And they're like, because he claims to be the son of God. And in verse 7, they tip and show their full hand. Because the Jewish people didn't want Jesus dead because he claimed to be king of the Jews. They just knew that's what would get Pilate to kill him. The Jewish people wanted Jesus dead because he claimed to be God. And we've been over this time and time again in John. They wanted him dead because Jesus claimed to be God and therefore was a blasphemer. And they wanted him dead no matter what he did or what he spoke or what they saw in his life. And so here they said, okay, fine. You want to know what's really going on? This guy's claimed to be the son of God. And our law says he has to die, so kill him. And verse 8 says what? And Pilate was even more afraid. Pilate goes back in, he looks at Jesus, and he says, is this really you? Like, are these things true? Right? Where do you come from? Because now Pilate's starting to put two and two together. He had already asked if he was king of the Jews, and Jesus says, my kingdom's not from here. The Jewish people just said he claims to be the son of God. And so Pilate looks at him, and he says, where are you from? 
And Jesus says not a word. And Pilate goes, do you not know that I have power? You know what I think is happening here? Is that I think for just a moment, even though it's not a full understanding, Pilate is catching a glimpse of who stands in front of him. Way back a few hours earlier in the morning, he looked at Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, my kingdom's not from here. The Jewish people finally come and say, look, he claims to be the son of God. And so Pilate puts two and two together, having found nothing wrong with this man. And he realizes in just a second who might be standing before him, and he says, where are you from? Because Pilate, right in that moment, is petrified. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, what was about to unfold is unimaginable. Right? If you're Pilate. And it says he was even more afraid. Was Pilate afraid of the Jews? Absolutely not. Was Pilate afraid of the angry mob? Absolutely not. Was Pilate afraid that Caesar would get mad if he killed this guy? Absolutely not. Was Pilate afraid that if he put to death the Son of God, something might happen? Absolutely. And so Pilate is afraid because he caught a glimpse for just a moment, I think, of who it was that stood in front of him. Even though he couldn't put all the pieces together and know who Yahweh was and who Jesus was, he caught a glimpse of the fear and the anger and the Jews and the words of Jesus And he put those things together and he thought, oh my. And so then he looks at Jesus and he basically tries to threaten him. Now Pilate's next move in the middle of fear is to overcome that fear with control, which is what we try and do a lot. We have a fear sees us. We try and overcome that fear with control. And that's what Pilate does to Jesus. He's afraid because he caught a glimpse that this might actually be God in front of him or Jesus. And he gets this sort of fear wave. And so he's going to try and control that fear wave with power. And he says, do you not understand who I am? I have the authority, the power to kill you or to keep you alive. Basically saying, you have to answer me and tell me the truth. And Jesus, in this incredible way, always demonstrating that he is absolutely not threatened, ever, says you have no power. The only reason you have it at all is because it was given to you from above. And that second question that really pops up is, who is truly in control? Now, we've talked about this throughout the Gospel of John, so it should come as no surprise. But humanity is not in control of this situation. You remember when Jesus was brought, was arrested by the angry mob in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane? He goes out to that mob and says, hey, who are you looking for? He surrenders himself over to their hands. Jesus is not overcome by angry humanity. Jesus is not a victim and he's not murdered. Jesus holds all authority and power and he voluntarily, sacrificially gives himself to humanity as part of God's bigger and massive and amazing and beautiful redemptive plan. Humanity didn't rise up against God and all of a sudden overthrow his power. Jesus looks at Pilate and he says, you have no power that hasn't been given to you. In other words, you are just a mere tiny player in this incredible plan that God has. And the only reason that you even have anything is because God has given it to you. He looks at Pilate and he says, you're insignificant. You're a player in God's redemptive will. We get stuck in this place sometimes of thinking that somehow humanity, angry mobs, Angry Jewish people, Pilate, 
all of these things sort of swelled up in this massive power of humanity and we overrode and killed God. The truth is the plan of redemption history started with a moment creation happened. All of the Old Testament leads us to this incredible point where Jesus stands before Pilate and says, you're still not in control. I am. And Jesus willfully goes to the cross. And so Pilate's attempt to wash his fear with control by threatening God comes up empty again because Jesus says, you've got nothing. And then this really weird but amazing exchange happens. From that moment, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Pilate realizes something's not right. He may not know exactly who Jesus is and how all these things are going to play out, but he knows who stands before him, and it's not a mere man. From that moment on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting. Right? They're playing into all of sort of Pilate's emotions. Right? If you, if you let him go, you're not a friend of Caesar, which was actually an executable offense. If you weren't a friend of Caesar as a leader, as a governor, you were, you were, able, you were going to be executed. So they're basically saying, look, if you don't kill him, we'll tell on you, and you'll die. And they're angry. And so Pilate hears this because he doesn't want to die. And he goes to the judge's seat, and he sits down where he makes official decisions. And he says, look, here's your king, one last shot. They shout, take him away. And Pilate goes, I want to ask you one more time, should I really crucify your king? And what are the chief priests, right, the religious leaders, what do they shout? We have no king but Caesar. So don't make the mistake of thinking that the Jews really believe Caesar was their king. Right? The question here is, who really is the king of the Jews? Don't make a mistake thinking that the Jews really believe that Caesar is their king. They don't. They don't for a second believe that Caesar is their king. But they're willing to pledge their loyalty and allegiance to worship and worship to anything that will get them their way. So you've got to understand how far back this actually goes. You remember when God first established the kingdom of Israel, who was supposed to be their king? God. They were not supposed to be like other nations. God had set them up differently from the beginning. He was going to be their king. He was the one and the only true king. And they were going to be different than all of the other nations. And so he set up a system of judges that would be able to help govern, but he was the true king. And what happens? Do you remember, those of you that are Old Testament scholars, you remember what the people started saying? We want to be like other nations. They actually went to God and they said, God, we want to be like all those other nations. Give us a king. And God actually replies back to them and says, no, I am your king. And they say, we don't want you as our king. We want a king like the other nations. We want to be like them. We love what they have. And you know what God does? He gives them over to their desire. And he installs King Saul. And then we have the rest of the, New, or the, rest of the Old Testament sort of shows how things deteriorated with the advancement and movement of human kings. So here are the Jews, thousands of years later, thousands of years later, not really claiming that Caesar's their king, but more claiming that God is not. Because we are willing to pledge our worship, love, and allegiance to anything that gets our way. And they said, Caesar, he's our only true king if you do what we want. Gratify us. Kill Jesus. 
And so Pilate says, okay, I give up. And he sends Jesus off to be crucified. I started thinking about all this, right, these questions. Why was Pilate afraid? And who's really in control? And who is really the king of the Jews? And it started really resonating in my heart a couple of of things personally. Like, do we really understand who, when we come and gather, or even when we're at our own home, who it is that stands before us? Like, who Jesus really is? Pilate was catching a glimpse, and the Jewish people were missing it. And we have all these labels for Jesus, right? He's my best friend, my homeboy, my thing, my God I call upon when I need stuff. Whatever your kind of version of your comfortable picture of Jesus is. But very rarely do we have this picture of the holiness of God. A God that at his voice nations tremble. Earthquakes, right? People fall to their knees. We've created this sort of docile, impotent God who has no real power until we need something from him. The truth is, Jesus, God in the flesh, is holy and majestic. And that God stood before Pilate and voluntarily gave himself so that we might have life. And we casually saunter in here on Sunday mornings when it's convenient to throw a little worship so that God will hopefully do what we need him to do. That's how a lot of us approach our Christian lives. And then we catch a glimpse every now and again of how life is unfolding and who God is. And we get swept up at times in fear. My finances, my marriage, my stuff, everything's overwhelming. And so then we try and control our fear with power. God, do this. You said you would do this. I need this. I show up in church. I do all these things. God, give me and give me and give me. And we try and control our anxieties and fear by demanding things of God. This is exactly what Pilate was doing. Controlling his fear by, by demanding that Jesus understand he needed something. Talk to me. That's what Pilate was asking Jesus. Talk to me. Tell me. Get me out of this. Pilate wanted out of it. How many times have you shouted at God in your closet that word? God, get this out of me. Get me out of this situation. Move this. Free me. I am petrified, and so now I am yelling at you to do what I need you to do. Right in the wake of our face, or in the front of our face, is this incredible, redemptive, amazing plan of God that we can't see because we want God to fix that immediate thing. And so Jesus looks at Pilate and he says, you don't get it. You only have what God has given you, power-wise. There is a much bigger picture at play. We want God to fix the here and now of our lives without looking at the bigger picture that is unfolding in front of us. We don't want to see the redemptive picture, God developing heart and character, God turning our struggles into freedoms. We just want God to take away the garbage and make me feel better. And when I'm afraid, I need to control that picture of God so that my fear doesn't seize me. And then we see this picture of the Jews, which I think we are remarkably like. The Jews didn't love Caesar. They hated Caesar. They'd kill Caesar if they had the chance. They wanted something. They coveted it, actually. They wanted so desperately for Jesus to die that they would give allegiance and honor and worship to whatever it took. I know you're sitting here going, well, that's not really me. No, it's true. Not in that frame. But think about your life. 
Whatever things have you set up on your pedestal as, as kings? Work, finances, retirement, recognition, marriage, children, whatever they are. We look at everybody else's life and we say, I want what they've got. And I'll do anything I can to get it. And I will covet and I will be jealous and I will long for and I'll throw them through my phone and I'll see everybody else's perfect Instagram life. Right? And I will look at the God of the universe and say, I want that, not you. I want my life to look like that. I want to go on vacations like that. I want this and I will do whatever it takes. And so we place those things up as kings, as idols, and we worship them. That's all the Jews were doing. They took the death of Jesus and put it on a pedestal and say, we will do whatever it takes to get to that. Even if it means saying, Caesar, you're our king. We don't even believe it, but we'll say it. You and I are not all that much different. We take whatever that thing is, whatever that idol is, whatever that desire is, we call it our true king, and we'll do whatever it takes to get that. And I'm not just talking about just purely material things. I'm talking about happiness, fulfillment. We will swear allegiance to whatever it takes to give us what the world says we need. Right? It's what advertising is built on. It's built on having you exchange your one true king for what they tell you. The Lexus with the bow, it's Christmas time, get ready, it's coming. Right? Perfect family in the snow, nobody's cold, kind of weird. Right? They will, advertising is built on having you exchange your king for culture's king. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, who is my true king? Do I want to be like other nations, other people? Or do I want to live the life that God has created for me where he is my true source of contentment and joy? He is my only king. He is in control of my life, and I believe that even in the most moments of chaos and fear. He is still on the throne. My political agenda, my social agenda, my marital agenda, my financial agenda, they are not my king. Right? But you, God, are my one true king. As we get ready to head into this season, right, we're stepping into this sort of holiday at Advent's on the horizon. This is the time in our world where we have to stop and go, who is it that I serve? Who is my king? What am I chasing with my life? The Jews were blind. They were chasing the death of Jesus. They could see nothing else. What are you chasing? And where does the king fit into that picture? So this table that we celebrate, we do it once a month, but this table that we celebrate is really this incredible picture of this poured out love that God has for us. This is probably the single greatest gift outside of the life of Jesus that we've ever been given, right? Because this table is what connects people across space and time. There are churches this morning all over the world that are celebrating communion together. It is the gift that Jesus has given the church as a reminder and as a promise. A reminder of what he did and a promise of what he's coming to do. It was actually just a day before Friday morning. The night before, actually, Jesus was gathered with his disciples. 
He was teaching them. They were sharing food together. And after that meal, he gathered with them and he prayed and he took a loaf of bread. And he gave thanks and he said, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant that's poured out for you. That as long as you take of this cup and of this bread, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This is not a habitual table. It's not something we do once a month to remind ourselves that, hey, there's a few things in church that we're supposed to do. This is a proclamation of worship, a part of our lives that serves as that place that says, I desire you. I did nothing to deserve you. My sin is ever before me. But yet you, in all of my human desperation, Jesus gave your life so that I might be washed and cleansed and set free. The Apostle Paul tells us that this is not a meal that we should take lightly. We should examine our inner hearts, pray for forgiveness, and take it with purity of mind. I don't know what you walked in here with this morning, but I venture to say it's something, because I did. We invite you to take a few moments and just seek the Lord. Confess what you need to confess. Pray with someone if you need to pray with someone. But go before the Lord and just say, God, prepare my heart for this incredible gift that you have given me. It's not a denominational table. It's open to all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And it is the single uniting tool of the church. This morning we take communion by means of intinction, which means fancy way of saying if uh, you come down, take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and eat. We'll have stations in the front and the back. And then we invite you to continue to stand as we close our time in worship. But I invite our servers to come forward this morning. Thank you.